Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been uh, a couple of years, I think, since I stood in the pulpit here. And uh, is it okay if I bend this down? Yeah. Okay. We have one of these too, and I always tend to break it when I do that. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, we were sent out to the month five years ago in July. We started our home Bible study. Uh, because of your support, both prayers and financial and training, uh, we planted a church in Bernie, and it's grown and grown, and we're out of space. So if you want to pray for us right now, we're, we're pretty much out of space. Of course, the pandemic up and down, you know, um, we've had a little more room lately, but with social distancing with our rows, we're, we're really out of space. So you can pray for us to make wise decisions going forward, and uh, maybe God will bring us a place, uh, a place to, to move to. We also have our first uh, elder up. Of course, you know Joey uh, and I started as elders, but we're going to have our third elder up for uh, church consideration next week. And we have a seminary graduate now. So, so much fruit uh, happening there. I could tell you so many stories. Uh, ask me after the service and I'd be glad to do that. Well, today I want to uh, bring a message to you from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a place that God uh, says we can learn many lessons. The Apostle Paul says it's there for an example. It's there to teach us. And sometimes we don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't read it enough. Sometimes uh, we don't hear enough sermons from the Old Testament. So I preached a series last year on Jonah at our church. And uh, I would like for you to turn this morning to Jonah chapter 1. Of all the, the sermons I've preached... I think this one has gotten the most hits online, and uh, probably Jonah as a whole, the most uh, interesting questions from our church and surprises, so uh, it's been good. I, I want to bring it here today as well. The title of the sermon is Running from God's Will, Running from God's Will, Jonah 1, 1 through 16. As you probably know, the book of Jonah is a minor prophet. And uh, the minor prophets are only minor because they're short. They're not less important than the major prophets. They're just short little books. And here we see the story of Jonah, a prophet of God. And really chapter 1 is should be 1 through 16. I know your Bible says 17, but the Hebrew version is 1 through 16. I don't, I don't know how 17 made it into our English versions. We'll be looking at 1 through 16 though this morning. Let me read the chapter to you. And I think you'll see where I'm getting the title, Running from God's will. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, and lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, 
On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How can you do this? How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh, the Lord, because he told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done us as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What an interesting chapter. Indeed, as believers, we often run from God, don't we? Even as believers, even as believers who have the Holy Spirit who have been saved by Christ. We run from the Lord. We try to hide from God. We think that our sins can be hidden. We think that if we do things in our homes, if we do things in the darkness, if we do things that are away from other people and our spouse, then we can hide and run from God. We think that we can go our own way, even in our thoughts, and somehow God won't see them, won't know them. And yet here, we see a great example of Jonah, a prophet of God, running from God, running from God's will, doing exactly the opposite of what God has called him to do. Jonah, of course, is a prophet of God in the 8th century B.C. He's in the northern kingdom, northern kingdom often called Israel in your Old Testament. And he is sent by God to proclaim a message. First to Israel, and then to the Gentiles, to the Ninevites. And we have a a special case here in the context of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Most prophets in the Old Testament are sent to God's people to proclaim God's message to return to God. The prophets are sent to say, return to God, repent. Here's the covenant you made according to Moses and according to Deuteronomy, according to Exodus, and you've strayed from that. You've sinned. They were preachers. Sometimes they told the future, but most often they just proclaimed God's message of repentance. Return to the covenant and look at the blessings you will receive. Well, in Jonah here, though, we don't see so much of that message at all, do we? We don't see anything about Israel. We only see Jonah, an Israelite, being sent to a Gentile. We see Jonah disobeying God in this first chapter. We see Jonah... Forgetting completely about his own one true God and doing his own will. And of course, what we're going to end up seeing in this chapter, and if you read through the whole book, is the great compassion of God. The great compassion of God throughout the whole book of Jonah. That's the main theme of the book. But here, specifically in chapter 1, we see the great 
compassion of God even when we run from God. Even when we run from God's will. God is so merciful. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate that he will come after us and bring us back. Not without consequences though. Not without consequences. But he will. He will bring us back. When we run from God's will, that's what I want you to see here today is that when we run from God's will, he will bring us back to him if we're truly his. And there will be consequences as a result. So I've sectioned this up really into three parts, three parts of the chapter, so we can look at this theme of God's compassion when we run from His will. And you need to know that Jonah's in sin. In fact, if you read through the whole book, it doesn't end well for Jonah. He starts out rebelling against God. He ends up the book of Jonah complaining about God. The book is not so much a prophecy to Israel. It is a lesson for Israel. It's a lesson for the church. Don't run from God's will and make sure to do exactly what God says. Well, first of all, let's look in the first two verses at the Holy Commission of Jonah. The Holy Commission of Jonah. God commissioned Jonah to do something. We all get a commission from God. As Christians, we all have a commission from God. It might be that you're to be a godly father, a godly mother. It might be that you're to bring up your children if you have children in the discipline and obedience of the Lord. It might be in the church. Of course, we're all as part of the church commissioned to serve, commissioned to use our gifts, commissioned to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. It's not the exact same commission, of course, that Jonah had. God spoke directly to him. But in the New Testament, we do have a commission. And it's a holy commission. And Jonah received a holy commission directly from God. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now it's interesting here that Jonah's name actually means dove. And back then, doves weren't this cute little bird that you wanted in your yard. They were dumb. They were senseless. They still are today. His name means dumb dove, senseless. And it's interesting because his father's name is Amittai, which means faithful. So we have the father whose name is faithful and the son who's a dumb dove as a name. And, and it fits this section here. He's acting dumb. He's acting senseless. Now in 2 Kings 14, it tells us that Jonah served as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, the second king of the northern kingdom. And what you need to know about that is that in the northern kingdom at that time, it was very prosperous. The northern kingdom always wanted to bring in false gods. And God would send them prophet after prophet. And at this time, they were very prosperous. Later, Jeroboam II will, will do very sinful things. And the kingdom eventually will be taken away into captivity. But this was a time of peace and, and prosperity. And the neighbors to the north, Assyria, were weak. And the king was able to conquer much land to the north. The king of Israel was. So here's the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Now usually the word of the Lord comes and God tells the prophet what to say. Usually the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and the whole book, like Isaiah, is what God is saying. Or Jeremiah. The majority of the book is the words of God. Here though, the word of the Lord means a command from God for Jonah to obey. It's not the message, we'll see that later. It's not the message that he's to proclaim. In fact, the message is very short. It's very short. In in chapter 3, verse 4, the message is, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. It's really half a verse. 
That's the gospel message that Jonah's going to take to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a very short message. But here, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. God speaks, in other words, in verse 1 here, to Jonah. In a dream, probably, he's asleep, maybe a vision. Probably heard a voice in the night as he's laying in bed. He knows it is God. So, God is going to give Jonah a specific task. It's a holy task because it comes from a holy God. Arise, go to Nineveh the great city, and cry against it. Three commands. Three simple commands. Now we often look up to the prophets, and we should. But not so much here in the first chapter of Jonah. We don't want to follow Jonah's example. We want to do the the counter example. We want to do the opposite. Look what Jonah does. God says, arise, get up. Get out of your bed. Get up now and go. He does that. Secondly, go to Nineveh, God says. Genesis 10 tells us that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. Nimrod founded many cities in the land of Shinar. And these were large cities. These were old cities. These were walled cities. Great cities that eventually would become the empire of Assyria. It's on the east bank of the Tigris River. Lots of fertile land there. It was a fertile crescent. Very rich. Rich in agriculture. Rich in wealth and money, rich in uh, artwork, rich in all the things that an ancient city would be rich in. And it was the central region of the empire in Jonah's day. Not the capital, not the capital. The king, kings in ancient times always moved around. They wanted to build something new. But it was a place where the king would go and rest during the summer months. It was his retreat. It was the largest city in Assyria. Now eventually Nineveh will be destroyed. Eventually it will be destroyed by God. God sends the Babylonians to destroy it in 612 BC. But right now, it is a prosperous, happening city. Full of wicked Gentiles. Full of pagans. Full of people like us before we were saved. It was a great city. Go to the great city, God says. 120,000 people will be mentioned later at the end of Jonah. A large city in that day. And also, great talks about its importance. A strategic center in the Gentile world. But God is sending one of his prophets there. You don't find that in the Old Testament very often. The only time where a book was written about God sending a prophet of the Old Testament to speak to another country. Sometimes they would write about another country. Sometimes they would proclaim a message in Israel about Moab. But here, Jonah's told to go and to proclaim a message. That's the third command. Cry out against it. Proclaim a message against the city. Why is he proclaiming a message against it? For their wickedness has come up before me. Their sin has become so great, God is going to deal with it. He has to deal with it. He's a just God. Their sin has become so great in the ancient world as they've conquered people. As they've taken literally hooks and and hooked them in the flesh of people and dragged them back to Assyria. As they spread out the pagan idolatry throughout the world. Their sin has risen. They've done injustice. Not only against Israel, but against all of God's creation. And God has to deal with it. God will deal with sin. We live in a world today that sort of shrugs their shoulders at sin. Even Christians sometimes just say, it's no big deal. 
There's never a case in the Bible where God doesn't deal with sin. It's either in the book of Revelation or somewhere before that. God will deal with sin. He doesn't wink at sin. He didn't wink at any of the sin in the Old Testament, including his people Israel. And he won't do it even with his own prophet that we'll see here in a moment. Well, Jonah's commissioned to go there. He's commissioned to to cry out a message there. And he's going to tell them how evil they are. He's going to tell them that they're sinners. Isn't that the first step in proclaiming the gospel? You've got to tell them who God is. We've got to tell them that God is our creator. But we have to say, look, God has told us to obey him. God has told us in his creation that we ought to give thanks to him. That we ought to worship him. And then we have to tell people they're sinners. Because they've disobeyed that command. Even natural revelation. They've they've disobeyed what God has put in front of them. They're sinners. Imagine that. A, A preacher has to go to a city, a large city. And he's got to go tell everybody they're a sinner. That's not going to go over well today. And it's not going to go over well back then either. Back then they'll just stone the guy if they don't like the message. Today they'll do other things. Well, how are we going to proclaim the gospel? Are we going to be like Jonah? Are we going to run from proclaiming the truth? Are we going to proclaim the truth that God has given us to proclaim? Go to all the nations, Jesus says. Go and proclaim the gospel. And the gospel includes telling the person they are sinners. doesn't matter how much we like or dislike the people we're going to. If God calls us to go, we go. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to ministry. And that man back there had to come and preach a message. And God used him to prevent my Jonah one moment. And eventually that led me to go. And it led me to seminary. There's nothing about things being easy here. God doesn't say, things will be great for you, Jonah, if you go. God just says, go. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. Well, secondly, let's look here at the rebellious flight of Jonah. The rebellious flight of Jonah. God God punishes nations. He punishes leaders of nations and, and those who follow their leaders. But Jonah doesn't want to go and proclaim that message. He doesn't want to go and proclaim that the city will be destroyed. See, it's no surprise in the Old Testament to read that God is going to wipe out Nineveh. And Jonah needs to go say that. That's not a surprise. The surprise here is one of God's own prophets runs from that task. Turns around and goes completely the opposite direction. Their sin has risen up before the Lord. God is saying, basically, go proclaim the gospel. And Jonah says, no. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up. He followed the first command while he's patting himself on the back. Look at me, God. I did the first thing you said. I got out of bed today. I got up. But Jonah rose up to what? To flee to Tarshish. To literally run away from God. This is the only instance on record where a prophet refused to carry out his commission. He completely refused. He patted himself on the back for getting up, and then he snuck off and ran to Tarshish. Tarshish is the the furthest known geographical point on the Mediterranean Sea. It's the furthest west you could go. Greek historian Herodotus tells us that it's uh, Tartessus. He he identifies Tartessus in his writings. And of course, this is probably Tarshish of the Bible. Southwest coast of Spain. All the way out at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. 
He didn't just quietly slip away. He didn't even just stay in his home. He ran completely in the opposite direction. Nineveh's in the northeast, and Tarshish is in the southwest. And as far southwest as you could go. He fled. He ran from the Lord. It's the opposite direction. That's the point. That's the point the author is trying to show, that Jonah is trying to show of his own life here. That he rose up to flee. Can you imagine Jonah trying to write this book? Now there's no record of Jonah's repentance in the book. He never repents. He ends the book on a bad note. I think that he wrote this book, and it is his confession. It is his proof of repentance. So he's got to write this about himself. He rose up and ran from the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. In the New Testament, that's called Jaffa. It's a port city in Israel. And he's going already in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Just his first step out of his house to Joppa is in the wrong direction. And he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Now these ships of Tarshish were huge ships. Wealthy Phoenician ships that would travel all the way out to Carthage and Spain and then back to the Mediterranean coast near Israel and Assyria. And these ships are very large, are capable of traveling throughout the ports of the Mediterranean region. And it says he paid the fare. Some commentators here think he paid for the whole ship because there's no one else mentioned on the ship but the sailors. Now, a prophet of God doesn't have a lot of money. And he just spent it all, probably, to pay for this ship, to, to pay for this trip. He's all in here. He's all in running from God's will. And he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So notice already, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Later on in chapter 2, he'll go down into the belly of the fish, down into the depths of the sea. Whenever a word is repeated or a phrase like that, especially in the Old Testament, it's, it's painting a picture. It's painting a picture. Jonah's life is going down, down, down. It's just spiraling down into further and further sin. One sin leads to the next sin, which leads to the next sin. And God is letting this happen right now. God is going to teach Jonah a lesson. He's letting this happen, and it's spiraling down and down. Jonah's rebellious. He's disobedient. He's a backslider. He's a backslider. He is backslidden in his obedience to God. Maybe we could even say in his faithfulness to God. Now to emphasize how senseless Jonah is acting, he informs us here three times that he was heading to Tarshish and mentions twice that he fled from the presence of the Lord. It's a very clear picture. There's nothing good at this point that we can see in Jonah to follow. Down, 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 fled, 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 to, to Tarshish. Does he really think he can hide from God, though? Do you think you can hide from God when you sin? Do you think God doesn't know all things and see all things? God is omnipresent. God is all-knowing. No matter what we do in our lives, God sees it. Whether you physically run from God and run off into sin for years... Are you just hide from God in your own home or in your heart? God sees all things. God sees all things. Jonah knew that, though. That's, that's what sometimes surprises us. Jonah, of course, knew. He knew that God knew all things. He knew what David wrote in Psalm 139. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, you actually will dwell in the remotest part of the sea in chapter 2. Even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. That's written long before Jonah's day, written by King David. Jonah knew his Bible. Jonah knew the word of God. This problem wasn't in his head. It was in his heart. Jonah could teach a great class on theology, the theology of God. God spoke to me. Let me tell you all about God. He's like so many of us who could teach great classes on theology, but we lack sometimes, don't we, in our obedience to God. Sometimes we say, like Jonah's going to tell the sailors, that we follow the Lord God and fear Him, but our life doesn't match up. Does your life match up to what you say? Does your life match up to the theology that you hold in your head? Does your heart obey like you know you ought to? Well, here's Jonah thinking that he's going to escape God. He knows all about God's omnipresence, but yet sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you forget the truth. Sin makes you turn away from Scripture. And I can imagine Jonah saying something like, you know, I'm going to exercise some of this free will that everyone else is always talking about. Uh, Find somebody else for the job, God. You can do anything, God. I know you can do all things. And so I'm just going to let you find somebody else for it. Why does it have to be me? Why does it have to be me? I don't want to go to seminary. I don't want to plan a church. I don't want to be put on a pedestal where everybody takes shots at me and my family. I don't want to be the Christian at work that, that gets... Looked at funny, maybe gets the the worst of the duties, or gets fired for being a Christian. Jonah says, I don't don't want it. Find someone else, I'm not going. Why is he refusing? No. Yeah, it's sin, yeah, it's stupid, yes, he's senseless, but does he have other reasons for not going? Well, I think he does. By the end of the book, we'll see that he knows, he knows God is going to save these Gentiles. He knew it would happen. After it happens, he says, look, God, I knew you would do that. Come on, God, I knew you would save them. You're so compassionate. You're so gracious. I knew. That's, Jonah says, that's why I didn't want to go. And Jonah also knew that there was another prophet in his day named Hosea. And Hosea 9.3, probably written around the same time, maybe a little before Jonah. He says this in Hosea 9.3, The northern kingdom, Israel will not remain in the Lord's land, in Yahweh's land, in in God's land. But Ephraim, that's just another name for the northern kingdom, where Jonah lives, his people, will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. That's the prophetic way of saying, the northern kingdom is going to get captured and taken into captivity into Assyria someday. That was Hosea's message in Hosea 9.3. And now Jonah knows this. He knows they're going to have to eat unclean food that not maybe in his generation, but in the future, Assyria is going to come and attack and win the war and take away his people. So he knows God's going to bring judgment upon them through Assyria and God's going to save Ninevites if Jonah goes. That's why he's refusing. He doesn't want to go. And so sometimes people ask, is Jonah even a believer? Don't we ask that sometimes? Isn't that right to ask that sometimes? When somebody sins like this? Is this guy even a believer? 
We have to ask that as church leaders sometimes. Well, I think he is. Uh, because Second Kings 14.25 says he is. Talking about Jeroboam, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which God spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, same guy here, the prophet, who is at Gath Hefer. He's a servant of God. He is a true prophet of God. He spoke truth. You don't become a true prophet of God and then somehow fall off the bandwagon later and become a false prophet. This guy is a believer. What we would call a believer. He is a follower of God. He's just being dumb and running into sin. Well, let's not do that. Let's not follow Jonah's example at all. How do we think we're going to get away with sin? This is almost ridiculous. It's, it's like when I tell my kids, look, I know you don't like that food, but you have to eat it. And you can complain and get extra chores and extra punishments. And then you're still going to have to eat that food you don't like. It makes no sense to me. You can eat it now, or you can get all these extra chores and then still have to eat it. Of course, that's a lighthearted example compared to what Jonah's going to have to go through. He's basically going to die or be near death before he turns around and prays that God would save him. Well, thirdly, let's look now at the accidental evangelism of Jonah. The accidental evangelism of Jonah. Jonah's going to end up doing the very thing God sent him to do. In chapter 3, he's going to go to Nineveh. But even before he gets there, he's going to evangelize some Gentiles. And they're going to be saved as a result of it. All of this complaining and running from God, and he ends up, before he even gets off the boat, starting the mission that God gave him. Isn't God compassionate? Isn't God amazing that he works even through our sin? And the rest of chapter 1, 4 through 16 here, is going to show us God's sovereignty over man's sin. Look at verse 4. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh here, the covenant name of God, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Hurricane force winds here. That's what this would mean in the Hebrew language. Very dangerous winds. And there was a great storm on the sea, of course, caused by the wind. That's the storms brought about by God as well. So that the ship was about to break up. Literally, if we were to translate this, the ship thought it would be broken up. Even the ship's getting into this, in a sense, as Jonah writes. You know, in contrast to Jonah's as a disobedient prophet, look what obeys here. The wind obeys God. The sea obeys God. And even in a sense, the ship obeys God. But not Jonah. Uh, Not Jonah at all. We see here God's sovereignty already over man's sin. Jonah's doing all that he can to run away. And what's God doing? God's trying to wake him up with nature. Natural revelation. God could just pop right in and talk to Jonah in person, couldn't he? He could just speak with his voice. He could knock Jonah down. He could kill Jonah. What's he doing? He starts out just by using the natural world to wake us up. Providence, circumstances in our life. And God's going to do a a mighty thing eventually through this running away of Jonah. Now, we never should use this as an example to sin so that grace may abound. 
you know, look at what God did in Jonah's life. I'm going to go sin so I can see if that will happen in my life. You know, let me sin so that grace may abound. No, no, Paul dealt with that in Romans 6. May it never be. But realize God is sovereign over sin, even your sin. If he was sovereign over the sin of Pilate and the Jews as they nailed Jesus to the cross... If he was sovereign over Joseph's life, as his brothers thought they were going to be able to do their own will, God certainly is sovereign over your life. Never an excuse to sin, but realize even when you're sinning, even when you're sinning, God is going to use all of that towards good, towards his glory. Now, you'll have to suffer consequences. We'll see that. But God will use it for his glory. God will find ways to convict us, too, of our sin as we run. As we stay in our sin, the longer we stay in it without repenting, God's going to bring an enormous amount of pressure. If you're truly His, He will put pressure on you. He will put pressure on you. Maybe from nature. uh, Maybe from financial pressure. Maybe relational pressure. Maybe health. Your health will suffer. God's going to use something to wake you up. He doesn't want His children to keep sinning. What kind of God is that that lets his children just run into sin and never tries to wake us up from that sin? Verse 5, the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God. Now these are expert sailors. The ships of Tarshish, these are the merchant vessels of the ancient world. Experts here. For them to get this afraid, it's got to be a great storm. It's God. It's no ordinary tempest. They were seized with terror. And they threw, they literally hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now you see how serious it is. The sailor's job is to get the merchandise from point A to point B. That's the only way they get paid. And this is expensive merchandise making a long trip. For them to throw it over, they are terrified. They are terrified. A huge business loss. If it's their business, then they're going to lose a lot of money. If it's someone else's business, they could be tried, they could be killed for doing such a thing. But they're willing to try anything to not perish in the storm. They're fearful for their life. They're scared of God. Sometimes we're not scared of God enough. Here's a bunch of pagans. They don't even know the God they're supposed to be scared of. And they're doing everything to try to please Him. Now they're going to learn of Him soon. But... We sometimes aren't scared of God at all. Certainly the world is not scared of God, is it? The world's running headlong into sin right now, and it could care less about God. Sometimes Christians aren't having a fear of God that they should. A true fear of God. A reverent fear of God. They make a mockery of Christianity. Liberalism's making its way into conservative churches. Why? Because we have no fear of God sometimes. We've got to have a fear of God like these men did. We'll do anything. But look at Jonah. The man of God here had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. Where's his fear of God? At this moment, he has no fear of God. He's just going to go to sleep. Huge hurricane force taking this ship and throwing it around. The men are doing all that they can to try to save their lives. And Jonah goes and falls sound asleep. Completely withdraws himself, goes into the depths of the ship, and falls asleep. It's senseless. It makes no sense that a guy would do this. 
But if we remember, sometimes in our sin, we have a false sense of security, don't we? You know, I've sinned, and God's already done what He's going to do. I'm safe now. I'm done. I've passed that point. You know, God threw a storm at my ship. I'm just going to go to sleep now. He's got a false sense of security. He thinks I've gotten away. I've made it over that hump. I've gotten over the hurdle. Now I'm on my way to Tarshish. Eventually the ocean will calm down. And I think this is where Jonah's at with his mindset. I'll just go down and go to sleep. I'm a true prophet of God. Nothing else can happen to me. God wouldn't do that to me. He's just starting his journey here of what God's going to do with him. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Literally, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're just laying in bed asleep? Get up! Cry out to your God, is the literal translation. Get up, cry out to your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now of all the false pagan gods out there, he's saying... Cry out to your God. They don't know which God's doing this. They believe in all kinds of gods in the pagan world. Who knows? Try your God, because none of our prayers have worked. They figure that the more gods you can pray to, the better chance they have of getting through to one who can do something about it. But what a shame, though. What a shame that a pagan had to tell Jonah to pray to his God. He goes to sleep. He doesn't pray. He goes to sleep. There's no record of him praying to his God at all, even after the captain tells him. Here's pagans now being used by God to convict Jonah of his sin. First the natural world, and now pagan unbelievers are being used to convict him. And literally the words here, get up and cry out, that the captain says, get up and cry out, are the same words in the original back in verse 2. Get up, arise, and cry out to Nineveh. So this would have rung a bell in Jonah's mind. Oh yeah, those are the words God said. God's using all these providential events to get our attention, to wake us up to sin. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity, this wickedness literally, has struck us. Did Jonah pray? Probably not. Nothing seems to work. Nothing's working. It's getting worse. Well, let's just cast lots. Let's just cast lots. That's often mentioned in the Old Testament. You cast lots to find out what the God's will is. And in, even in the Old Testament, the one true God tells Israel to cast lots. And the high priest even had a set of lots that he would cast to find out who would be chosen by God to do certain things. But the casting of lots is not a good idea for the Christian. Not at all. It's not good for the Christian to cast lots. In fact, after Acts 1, we don't see any casting of lots. The Holy Spirit comes, and He guides us, and He leads us. Yeah, they casted lots to replace Judas, but after that, after Pentecost, there's no casting of lots. So we ought not to be rolling dice to make decisions in our life. We ought not to be thinking that we ought to roll the dice or draw a straw to make some important Decision. Just know your Bible. Follow it as best you can. Use wisdom in life. Don't be casting lots. But here they are. They cast lots. And they, they, the lot falls on Jonah. So God is directing the lot. Proverbs 16.33. The lot's cast into the lot. But it's every decision is from the Lord. 
And it's an irony here. Jonah's been sent to Nineveh to confront pagans with their wickedness. And what's he done? He's actually brought wickedness, calamity, same word, down upon these guys on the ship. These words keep coming up in the chapter. God is reminding him, who brought this wickedness upon us? Jonah. Jonah, you're supposed to go proclaim against wickedness. Now you're bringing calamity down upon people. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's going on with you, Jonah? What's your occupation? Notice he never answers his occupation. He never tells him he's a prophet of God. Where do you come from? What is your country? What are your people? What's your mission, Jonah? What's the purpose of your life? What are you even here for? Why is this happening to us? Now, if he admitted the truth, then they would know. He was a prophet called to go to Nineveh. He would have to actually say out loud what God had told him to do. I think that's too convicting for him. All he says, I'm a Hebrew. They knew what that meant. They knew who his God was. I'm a Hebrew. They knew of the Hebrews. And that was sufficient to answer where he was from, who his people were, his country, not his occupation. And he says, I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the God who made everything. I don't think he said it like that. He should have. He should have preached it. He should have proclaimed it. These guys, these guys are in a great position to hear the truth. This is like that person who comes to you and they're just beaten up with life and God has used all these things in providence to bring them to your front door so you can evangelize them. And you say, you know, Jesus is Savior. See you later. Never do that. Tell them the gospel. Jonah's theology is great, but like so many people with good theology, it seems to make no difference. You know, I fear God. Does he really fear God? Does he? What's he done? He's completely run the opposite direction. He's gotten on a ship. He's paid all his money. He's run from God. I completely fear the Lord God who made everything. Bad application, Jonah. Bad application of your theology. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? How could you do this? They understood it completely. That's all he had to say. The one true God who made everything. And and that's who you fear? And that's who's doing this? Extremely frightened. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. He goes ahead and just tells them right here. And to summarize it, Jonah just says he told them, and how could you do this? The sailors fear God, don't they, more than Jonah? They're not really scared of Jonah. They fear God. But what a rebuke to Jonah, though. Jonah says he fears God, but does he? I don't see it. The sailors don't even know who God is until this point, and suddenly they find out who God is, and they fear him. They fear him greatly. They have an extreme fear of God. Jonah didn't know it, but he's already evangelizing them. He's already evangelizing them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. The storm hasn't gone away. Hurricane's getting worse, essentially. It's, it's going to kill them. What do we do? Tell us. Tell us what to do, Jonah. What must we do to be saved, it almost sounds like. The Philippian jailer speaking to Paul. Well, what, just tell us. We want to please your God. Just tell us. 
Here's what he says. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Jonah knows. He knows his disobedience has affected other people. Consequences are already setting in. First it affects other people, and then it will affect Jonah in the next chapter. I know. I know this is the reason. And then he's also saying, Hey, I give up, God. I give up. I want these guys, of course. Yeah, yeah, just throw me into the sea, guys, so you can be safe. But God, I give up. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. I'm not going to fight against you, God. Men, just kill me now. I don't want to go. God's going to make me go. He's already trying to use all these things to make me go. Just kill me now. I'm not going, God. I'll just rather die than go to Nineveh. That's not the right response. It's not at all. He should have repented here. That's the correct thing. He should have repented here. God's already used all this pressure, and he still hasn't gotten Jonah's attention. Jonah's stubborn. Stubborn like we are in our sin, huh? And he says, I'm not going to do that. Not going to do it. However, the men rode desperately. What happened here? He tells them what to do, and they don't do it. They just rode desperately. Literally, it says they dug their oars to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier. Here's their thinking. If God's done this to us, and we throw his prophet overboard to die, that's going to be worse. There's no way we're doing that, Jonah. You're crazy. You're crazy for running from your God, and now you're crazy for telling us to kill you. We're just going to row even harder to get to land. Won't work, though. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. Now look at this prayer. We've seen no prayers from Jonah. Nothing like this, even in the whole book. There's, there's a short prayer in Jonah 2 where he calls out to God. Well, it's kind of a, a song, really. But he acknowledges the salvations from the Lord in that prayer in, in chapter 2. But look at these guys' prayer. Better than some of ours sometimes. We earnestly pray. We fervently pray, O Yahweh. There they called God's covenant name. They're not just praying to any God here. They're not just using God's general name, His covenant name. Oh, Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. Don't hold His sins on us. Don't hold us accountable for His sins. And if we throw Him overboard, Lord, He's telling us to. And He's your prophet. Don't don't put innocent blood on us. They knew the Noahic covenant. Genesis 9. If you shed a man's blood, then you'll be responsible for that man's blood. Life is precious. These pagans knew more then than many in our country know today. Many in our world know today who are killing babies every single day. And here's these pagan Phoenician sailors. This man's innocent. We don't want to kill him. They had more concern for one life than Jonah had for hundreds of thousands of lives in Nineveh. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to preach the gospel in Nineveh. And they're concerned about his one life. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. That's how they end their prayer. You're sovereign, God. They just proclaimed more truth in one sentence than we often see proclaimed in churches around the world. You're sovereign, God. You save. We can pray to you. Please don't kill us. Don't let us perish. Don't put other people's sin upon us. And don't accuse us of something that the prophet of God is telling us to do. 
We are at your mercy. That's what they're saying. We are at your mercy. The Lord, you, you do as you please. We're not in a position to demand anything from God. We're never in a position to demand anything. We can call upon his promises. We can pray like these men did. But we can't demand anything. God does as he pleases. I think these men were saved. I think these men were saved. They're calling on the one true God. They're expressing the very things that you would want to see expressed in the Old Testament with faithfulness towards God. Not Jonah. He's a true prophet, but he has no prayers until chapter 2. So they picked up Jonah. They threw him. They hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging immediately. There's a lot of throwing going on. You notice that? God's hurling the wind. He's hurling the sea. He's hurling the ship. They're hurling things overboard that they don't want any more merchandise. And they're hurling Jonah into the sea. Four times it's mentioned in that chapter. The idea is it's God's providence. This is all God. God's the one doing the hurling behind the scenes. Then verse 16. This is why I think... That they're saved, their prayer, and the sacrifices. The men feared the Lord greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They fear God more than Jonah. They fear God so much, they want to sacrifice to Him. And they made vows. They made holy promises, divine promises. I think they're saved. Some will argue here that they're not. How could they have known? Their prayer shows it. And their actions. It's not just what they say, but it's their actions that follow through. Jonah has accidentally evangelized these people. And they've been saved. They've come to know the one true God. I think we'll see them in heaven. Here's my evidence. They feared Yahweh, the God of Israel. They prayed to Him. They made sacrifices to Him. They made vows to Him. It's much more fruit than we'll see in Jonah's life. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Sounds good. Good theology. But he says, I'll do it later. I'll do it when I get back. Don't have time to preach all all of chapter 2. I don't think it's Jonah's repentance. I think it's just Jonah recognizing God as sovereign and wants to be saved from the belly of the fish and the depths of the sea before he drowns. But yet these men immediately, I mean the second that the storm stopped, they feared the Lord greatly and they offered up a sacrifice right there and made vows. They didn't put it off. Jonah's a true prophet and these men are going to be with us in heaven. So what's the point of this whole chapter? What, what, What should we get out of it? Remember, God is sovereign, God is compassionate, God is who he is. Merciful, gracious. And even when you run from him, he will bring you back. But there will be consequences. Jonah's just getting started with the consequences. There will be consequences. Don't run from God. That's the point. Don't run from God. Don't be a Jonah. When God commands you to do something, do it. If it is in the Bible and you're supposed to do it, then do it. It's a good thing. He loves you. That's why he gives you his precious word to follow. And if you do run from him, he will use everything to get you back. And he will eventually get you back. Charles Spurgeon said that on this very text in his morning and evening, he said, Christian, do not play the Jonah unless you wish to have all the waves and the billows rolling over your head. You'll find in the long run that it is far harder to shun the work and will of God 
than to at once yield yourself to it. Jonah has lost his time. For he had to go to Nineveh after all. It is hard to contend with God. Let us yield ourselves at once. God's gracious to Jonah. God's loving to Jonah. But Jonah lost time. Jonah was in fear of his life. I want to close with just comparing this to a New Testament example. An example we should follow. The Apostle Peter was given the gospel. He was told to go go out and proclaim the gospel. And God told him to go down to a city called Jaffa. The same exact city that Jonah ran to. Joppa and the old. Jaffa and the new. In Acts 9 and 10. And Peter was told to go and eat with Gentiles and proclaim the message of the gospel. Very parallel to Jonah. And Peter says, God, I can't. I can't eat that stuff. I can't go mingle with them in their house. That's, that's against the Old Testament. And God gives him a vision. God gives him a commission. God calls him to do it. Shows him the sheet that comes down with all the animals. Take, eat. And Peter goes. Peter obeys. And Cornelius' family is saved. And Gentiles start being saved. And it's completely the opposite of Jonah chapter 1. Let's obey God. Let's not run from God. You can't run from God. It's senseless. It's ignorant. Let's just follow Him. And let's please Him. Lord, we do thank You. We thank You give us examples like this so that we don't stumble off into our own sinful paths. And even when we do, Lord, You're there to correct us. You use Your Word to correct us. You use all of your providential means to correct us. We know that you love us. If we're truly yours, we know that you love us. And we know that Christ has saved us on that cross. He paid for our sins. And now we're to live a life that's pleasing to you. Let us not be Jonas, but let us follow your will every day, every moment, with every thought. And Lord, when we sin, bring us back to you. We know you will. Bring us back. We know you're righteous. You will forgive us. You will cleanse us as you promised in 1 John. So we pray for that, Lord. Let every believer here know that you will bring us back. In the name of Christ, amen.